This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Season 5 of the Emmy-winning news magazine show Vice premieres tomorrow night, Friday, February 24th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on HBO. In a big shift for a show that was originally dominated by guys, Vice correspondents Gianna Taboni and Isabel Young carry the season, hosting more episodes than their male peers. Gianna and Isabel joined Vice in Season 3, proving themselves every bit as fearless as the boys, confronting Gitmo detainees, rape perpetrators in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and ISIS fighters in Iraq, and covering topics as diverse and controversial as GMOs, dynamite fishing in Tanzania, commercial surrogacy in India, Uganda's death penalty for gays, and Afghan women's rights. In season five, they chase today's most pressing stories, living out of their suitcases and traveling to the world's most dangerous regions. Just some of the hot topics they cover this season include the war in Syria, Russia's annexation of Crimea, autism, cancer in Cuba, the future of Appalachia, South Sudan, and threats against press freedom around the world. On today's episode, Gianna and Isabel discuss how Vice's unique brand of immersive journalism appeals to the news consumption tastes of millennials, and they voice their concerns about President Trump's recent demonization of journalists as the enemy. Isabel shares some of the frustrations she had with Bashar Assad's Orwellian propaganda machine as she covered the war in Syria, and she'll talk about her experience spending the night in women's prison. Gianna reveals the difficult decisions facing trans youth and the uncertainty of the consequences of those choices. She shares her personal experience sneaking into France with migrant refugees and the shocking war on drugs taking place in the Philippines, plus longevity, curing blindness, and the fast food of the Middle East, with vice correspondents Gianna Taboni and Isabel Young coming up in just a moment. Season 5 of Vice airs on HBO on Friday nights. Today I'm talking with Vice correspondents Gianna Taboni and Isabel Young. In the past, just some of the topics they've covered for Vice have included Gitmo, GMOs, sexual assaults on college campuses, China's trade relationships in Africa, same-sex marriage, Afghan women's rights, the environmental cost of meat consumption, the Paris attacks, commercial surrogacy in India, Egyptian tomb raiders, and fishing with dynamite. Yes, that's a real thing. Gianna and Isabel, thanks for talking with me. Thanks so much. Thanks. For Good to be here. Um, Vice has been at times accused of being a little too bro-y. This season, women are taking center stage. In fact, you're getting more airtime than your male counterparts. Uh, was that part of a conscious decision on the part of the producers? I don't think so, honestly. I mean, obviously, the company and the show um, was very male-dominated for several years. Um, but I think Isabel and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, pitching the right stories and producing great content at other areas of the company. Um, and I think, you know, the senior and executive producers at HBO and Shane recognized that um, and brought us on board. And I think it's been really good, you know, not just for the show, 
Um, but for HBO and for us, because I think we bring a different voice to the show. Um, I think it's really beneficial, um, you know, to have us uh, be the voice of some of these stories and also be telling uh, the stories of women. Um, Isabel's story on Afghan women uh, is a good example of that. The story that uh, we did on sexual assault on college campuses, I don't know that um, uh, that they would have been done in the same way if a male correspondent would have done them. So I think in, in many cases, not just in the telling of the story, but also gaining access in certain parts of the world um, to certain characters, it's very beneficial to have uh, to have women involved. Yeah, I think we've come at a really fortunate time in that um, it's not just us. I mean, obviously, we're facing it, so you can see the, the presence of females on, on the screen, but also behind the screen. I mean, we have some of our best producers, senior producers, researchers, writers, um, some of the best people working on the show and around the company are now women. And it's it's really great to see that and to be in an environment that represents both sexes so so well. If there was one word that I would use to describe both of you, it's fearless. Has there ever been any hesitation on the part of Shane Smith or Vice to embed female journalists in such dangerous situations as the war in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan? I don't think so, to be honest. Um, but I, I would say that at the same time, it's, it's our choice to go. And at any point, we can obviously say that we, we don't feel comfortable with going to a certain place. Um, and I don't think either of us would have any hesitation in doing so. Um, I definitely wouldn't describe myself as fearless. I <laughs> often crap myself when I think <laughs> places I'm going to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an incredible opportunity to get to go to these places and to tell these stories and to meet these people and to, to as, as a journalist said, to really... Um, tell stories that our male counterparts wouldn't necessarily be telling as well. Yeah, and just to add on to what Isabel's saying, um, well, first of all, I guess I, I take a lot of pride in, in Shane and um, our senior and executive producers seeing us, I think, as exactly equal to our male correspondents. So when I pitch a story on Westerners joining ISIS, it wouldn't cross their mind to put a male correspondent on the story. Um, I think they feel comfortable with um, the calculated risks that we're taking and our judgment in the field. Uh, also, Isabel and I were laughing the other day because we were saying, God, there's, you know, we feel like there are a lot of people who, um, you know, are in the field and in these dangerous positions and are not scared. And the two of us talked about how it's actually very scary. And it's okay, I think, uh, as people in our position to say that some of these situations are scary, because I think it helps you assess the risk, not just um, as a journalist, but as a female journalist um, and documentary filmmaker. And I think unless you feel those nerves, you may not be um, considering the risks in a real way. So yeah, we definitely take a lot of precautions um, across the board. Um, and our male correspondents do as well. Yeah, I think to show your vulnerabilities also and to show your hand gives you an ability to for others around you to also feel that vulnerability. And that isn't necessarily something that that other people would have in those situations because there's a sense of machism when you're reporting on certain places or certain situations. Um, so I think I think having the ability to to show that vulnerability can only be a good thing. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the culture at Vice. Um, I think it was Vice that coined the term immersive journalism, which kind of boils down to getting a closer, more authentic story, more of a documentary style. Um, compared to CNN and Fox News, where you barely see anything on screen for all the graphics, do you think that millennials want their news delivered in perhaps a raw, less produced package? 
Yeah, I mean, I think for both of us, one of the benefits and the, one of the draws of actually working on this show is getting to do in-depth stories where um, the viewer really gets to join us and to see the journey that we're on and to experience some of the things that we experience and to, to really feel the story. Um, and I think that I hope that that's what a audience would want to see. They don't want to just see the polished, ex overly produced version of, of the story. They want to see how we get it and the obstacles we come across in actually getting it. It's amazing how uh, effective it is making a very simple change, which is talking to the viewer like you're talking to your friend on the couch of your living room. Yeah. Um, as a viewer, uh, before I came to Vice, as soon as I saw Vice, I thought, wow, I'm all of a sudden interested in watching these long form pieces. I was being uh, fed this narrative everywhere that millennials don't like uh, hard, long form uh, journalism. And I didn't feel that way. My friends didn't feel that way. I think it was just the way that we were being fed this content. And so Vice, I think, was very refreshing for everyone and, and remains that way. And Gianna, am I right that you interviewed a member of ISIS in Iraq in this season? I mean, knowing how horrific the things that they do to women are, uh, was that terrifying for you? Yes, we interviewed uh, two, two ISIS fighters. Um, if I could, I'd like to start with kind of a more lighthearted story uh, <laughs> that happened while we were there. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs> ease into it. Because you don't survive it. doing this without a little humor. <laughs> um, we were invited to take, uh, to take a tour of an ISIS prison. So there were hundreds of ISIS fighters here. Um, and when we walked in, I was relieved to see that they were all behind bars. Uh, and uh, so we're walking around and, you know, the, the one of the heads of the prisons is showing me the medical facility, and then he brings me into um, the tea room where tea is made for the prisoners. They were trying to, you know, uh, emphasize that they treat these people um, while considering, you know, human rights and in humanitarian ways. And so we walk into the tea room, and there's a gentleman there who is pouring the tea, and uh, because it didn't really relate to what we were doing, the story we were telling, it just said, hey, man, like, do you like your job? And he turned to me and in Arabic, he sort of smiled uh, and said, yeah, I'm a prisoner too. And at that moment, I realized, oh, wow, not all of them are behind bars. <laughs> and when you're in that position, you have to realize that you're, you know, a white, non-Muslim American woman working in media, their perfect target. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I was a little more uh, cautious, I think, on the rest of the tour. Um, but in terms of interviewing them, I found it fascinating because, you know, we see them just through their YouTube videos and uh, their horrific beheadings that they execute and through their magazine and social media and, you know, YouTube propaganda videos. You don't often <laughs> get to hear from them in a more personal way. And I got to learn their stories firsthand, how they grew up, what they were doing in the years before they joined ISIS and why they joined and it wasn't uh, obvious what we learned. I mean, one of the people we spoke to, um, he was a bad guy, no doubt. He talked about, you know, how the caliphate wouldn't stop growing until they reached D.C. But the other person I talked to um, was not your typical ISIS fighter. He, at least what he told us, was that he was an uneducated shepherd. He had five kids. And his brother showed up to him one day, um, showed up at his door one day and said, uh, you're joining this this group with me. And he said, no way, I have no interest in, in doing that. And he said, they're going to come back and kill your whole family if you don't join. So he picked up his stuff and walked out the door. Um, so, you know, uh, I think painting everyone with the broad brush is a little bit dangerous because, you know, just like any other criminal organization, cartel, gang in the U.S., even there are different reasons that people join these groups. 
And speaking of ISIS, season five opens with Isabel covering the war in Syria. It was an interesting piece because it seems that you had a hard time getting anyone to speak honestly about what's going on in the country. One person you spoke to anonymously even called it Orwellian. I wonder, Isabel, do you think that the people's silence and obvious acquiescence to the Assad regime said more than anything that they could have put into words? Absolutely. I mean, I think it was a difficult piece to do because the whole time we had a government minder with us who was following us everywhere, checking that we weren't seeing the wrong things or doing the wrong things or speaking to the wrong people or anyone spoke out of line. Um, So it's always going to be difficult to get those candid moments. I think some of the most revealing times were the moments that were whispered to us or spoken casually or referenced off air. Um, And as you see in the piece, there's this moment where one of the government security officials turns to us and says, this is 1984. This is very much an Orwellian police state. And it's those kind of moments that become incredibly revealing. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments is when I guess you kind of had your role reversed on you and you were actually a guest on a morning show on a government television station. Um, I think you and the hosts were having entirely separate conversations, weren't you? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think we, were, we went in there with uh, different intentions as to how we wanted that to play out, and they didn't take too kindly to me asking them a few questions. Um, they, I mean, this is going to be aired on state media, and they know that the government is going to be watching them. In fact, uh, the host that I spoke to afterwards admitted that the government does watch it, and they're very aware that uh, if they say something that they're not content with then they will be informed mm. um and so yeah it was this incredibly awkward moment which was extremely tense because it was live tv um where i'm asking them a question and they're batting it back and asking me a question and it just turns into <laughs> this tennis round of questions that no one's really answering um so yeah definitely one of the most awkward live TV situations I've been on. (laughs) Yeah, the propaganda machine in Syria is really a thing of wonder. Uh, Did you start to have dreams about Bashar al-Assad after seeing his face 500 times a day plastered on every wall, every billboard? Yeah, I mean, the prevalence of that was astounding everywhere you went, especially in Damascus, where, I mean, his presence has been extremely um, consolidated for a while. Um, yeah, you do start to think about it a fair bit. I think one of the things that we were trying to figure out while we were there is, you know, how genuine is the support? How loyal are these people? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a difficult question to ask when you go into a dictatorship and you're only allowed to really see one side of the story and the side of the story that you're seeing is extremely well monitored and that propaganda machine is extremely well functioning. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the prevalence of those posters both speaks to how solidified his power really is, and also his vulnerabilities and his weakness, and and often the most glaring examples of his um, presence around these cities is also the biggest sign of uh, of the vulnerability of that. Yeah, and here in the U.S., the impression is that the only real resistance that there is left right now is ISIS. Um, One of the saddest parts is toward the end, you visit the city of Homs, which was the former capital of the revolution. Um, people are just standing in, in rubble, just beat into submission. You ask if they're mad at Assad or at the government, and <laughs> strangely, they say, no, they don't blame Assad. They're afraid to say that it's the government's fault. They've just completely been broken down. Um, do you think the resistance is wearing down to the point where they just 
don't have the fight in them anymore? Is there still a legitimate free Syrian resistance left? Not much of one, to be honest. I mean, I think that it's very legitimate that people are extremely tired. I mean, this war has been going on for six years now. And throughout the country, there is just a, a genuine sense of exhaustion because this war has been going on for six years now. And it's 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 tiring. Um, people in Aleppo, for example, are living, were living at the time that we were there with the daily reality of having to leave your house and not knowing whether you're going to come back at night. And in Homs, it was just an incredible realization that people are moving back, picking up their lives a few years later from where they left off and moving back into their homes. And yes, accepting that this is the reality. And it was an incredibly apocalyptic, terrifying movie-like scene to be walking into. And it was extremely sad. Well, on the domestic front, Gianna, one of the stories you cover is a controversial issue of transgender youth. Um, it seems that these children in these families are sort of caught between a rock and a hard place because they're often having to make such permanent decisions at such a young age. But on the other hand, the longer they wait, the harder that transition's going to be. Um, did it seem like a cosmically unfair situation to put any child or teen in to have to make such difficult adult decisions at that age? I think definitely. I mean, I think, you know, because there isn't long term data on uh, whether children regret this decision in the future, it's really difficult for doctors, parents to, um, to, to make the decision of whether to move forward with the medical transition for these kids. The problem is that if the children are not, not allowed to medically transition and the parents discuss this and it's, it's agonizing, if parents don't allow their children to transition, they're facing a 40% suicide rate. Wow. So what some of the parents told us is that there is no decision. I would rather have a boy as my child than no child at all. Um, so it's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult. And, 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 you know, it's so strange to do a story that um, has obviously been in the headlines very consistently for the last few years, but is still in many ways completely undiscovered. Doctors, the experts at the center of this issue, don't know whether they're giving the right guidance. Yeah. Um, and so for parents, for doctors, yeah, these decisions are, are incredibly agonizing. Yeah, that was interesting to hear that even the doctors admit that, you know, this is the first generation to transition before adulthood. So it's hard to predict what the effects are going to be. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you talk to uh, someone like Charlotte, who's one of our characters, she's 18 years old. And she wasn't able to begin her transition before puberty, which means, um, as she described it, she developed manly elements. Um, and she's now on estrogen, um, which is helping her uh, transition in the way that she wants to. She underwent breast augmentation, which, again, is helping her pass as a woman. Um, but she wishes that she was able to go on hormone blockers, which, which pause puberty, before puberty. Um, she wishes, wishes she was able to go on cross-sex hormones um, before she was eventually able to. And the reason she didn't was because her family wasn't accepting of it. Well, I wonder, from your experience with these families, what would you say to those who, coming completely from an unbigoted place, coming from a place of empathy and compassion, say, you know, if someone identifies or wants to be something that it's biologically impossible for them to be, a man can't give birth to a child and so forth. 
aren't you just setting them up for disappointment and heartache? Might not it be kinder to encourage them to accept who they are? What would your response be to that? I completely understand where those people are coming from. I completely understand it. And I heard it and thought about it so much in reporting this story. I think in a utopian world, uh, we would all just be born as who we were. We wouldn't have these social constructs around gender. Um, we wouldn't feel like we had to be fully one thing or fully the other. Um, and I realize this is sort of like a wacky idea of what the world could be, but we, I don't think that we would have um, this, this issue that we're dealing with right now if these uh, sort of very strong social constructs didn't exist. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Gianna Taboni and Isabel Young of HBO's Vice when we come back in just a moment. Isabel, you did a segment about the women's prison epidemic. You even spent a night in women's jail. I'm assuming that that was your first experience in women's jail. What was that like? You assumed right. Thank You'd be you, surprised. Um, yeah, it, I, you know what? I wasn't expect. I wasn't. You know, what? I really wasn't prepared for how desperately sad it was going to be. You go to these places like Syria or Iraq or wherever, and you you know there's a part of you that is psychologically braced for going into a situation which will be miserable. I wasn't prepared for that when I went to spend the night in jail. Although I probably should have been. Um, it was. It was really interesting. Every person we spoke to had a really tragic tale to tell us. And these women were incredibly open with their stories and willing to share their time with us and make my bed for me and to make me feel like um, and make me feel welcome in their environment. And they were incredibly generous. Um, I think that the story itself is incredibly important because uh, women are the fastest growing population of incarcerated people in the US right now. Um, and the attention on them is relatively slim compared to their male counterparts, because they still only make up 9% of the incarcerated population. Um, but the reasons that they go into the system and the reasons that they get stuck there and the issues that surround them, like healthcare, like being mothers, these are all issues which aren't properly being addressed. And I think that they're incredibly important for a country to consider when it comes to human rights. Tell the story of the um, the women who, how they have to give birth. That is so shocking. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. I mean, I think around half of the states in the US um, still shackle mothers as they're giving birth. Wow. Um, and yeah, women have to go through that. It's incredibly traumatizing. And we spoke to one woman the day before she was about to go and do that and go through that. And it just seems so desperately inhumane to be shackling someone to their bed whilst giving birth. It seems like the last moment in time you're possibly going to think about running away. Yeah. And one thing that was a real revelation for me is how many mothers are losing their children thanks to what mm. might have been a well-meaning law called the Adoption and Safe Families Act. What is that and how is it impacting mothers who end up in the criminal justice system? Yeah, I mean, 60% of women in the justice system are mothers. And when you're a mother, you're generally a primary caregiver. And the Family and Safe Adoptions Act means that if your child is in foster care for 15 out of 22 months, then you lose permanent custody of your child. 
And this obviously has a profound impact on people who are desperately fighting nonviolent crimes, which is the majority of women who are incarcerated today. And when you lose your child, that means that that child is brought up with no mother, brought up with no role model. They are incredibly vulnerable to the system itself. And that's what we're finding over and over again is that these children who are brought up in that environment are often tend to move towards the environment that they see their parents in. Uh, Gianna, you did a piece a while back about the anti-migrant backlash in Europe following the Paris attacks. And this season, you do a segment that feels sort of like a bookend or a continuation of that piece where you embed with refugees trying to enter France. Um, From what you saw this time around, has the anti-immigrant sentiment subsided at all? Absolutely not. I mean, when you read articles on the what's being called the refugee crisis, especially in Europe, um, it's hard to really understand what refugees are going through on a day-to-day basis. And truthfully, it's not really the um, salacious headlines like the hate crimes or um, that type of thing. What's really happening is that these people on a day-to-day basis want to get an education, they want to learn the country's language, they want to get jobs, they want to work, they want to start a new life and support their family, and they're not able to do that. Um, they have this idea when they leave, um, they're often war-torn countries, that making this uh, journey, uh, which of course thousands of people per year don't survive it, uh, it's it's almost impossible what these people go through, that they'll eventually get to a place that is going to be um, safe and is going to uh, help them start this new life. And what's happening right now is that many refugees actually aren't able to do that. We uh, traveled through the night from Italy to France um, uh, through uh, railroad passages and highways up the southern uh, Alps with about eight guys from Ethiopia. And they're all in their early 20s, I mean, prime earning years. Um, and they're all just, you know, desperately want to work. And this was their fourth time trying to cross the border. And we left them at about 3 a.m. because uh, when the sun comes up, uh, it can be the time when they're going to get caught. So we know our cameras wouldn't do them any favors. And we left. And then uh, a few hours later, we got a text from them that they had been picked up and sent all the way back down um, to the southern part of Italy, uh, 800 miles or so. Uh, so again, that means that they have to begin their journey again, uh, you know, hiking up to where they're trying to go. So, I mean, I think the main problem here is that European countries don't know how to handle this situation right now. They have such, um, an extreme influx of people coming into their countries. Unemployment, um, uh, is already high in some of these places. And so the idea of, uh, you know, processing and providing employment, um, for all of these migrants, uh, is incredibly difficult and, uh, and for the refugees, you know, definitely difficult for them as well. Well, like you mentioned, a lot of the headlines tend to revolve around the horror stories surrounding the immigration crisis. Stories of attacks on women tend to dominate the headlines. Obviously, you had a camera person with you, but at any point did you feel threatened or, or feel that you weren't safe with these men? You know, we didn't. Uh, we, we obviously took precautions. You know, we had um, uh, a crew where there were at least four of us together at all times, but we didn't really feel that threat. You know, these were people who were telling us detailed stories of, of how they didn't feel that they would be alive if they had stayed in their countries. And they really felt like, you know, victims 
um, and people who just wanted to live in a free state that was safe for them and their families. So we we didn't. Um, it doesn't mean that, that that doesn't exist, but I've had a lot of experiences with refugees, both in Europe and in the U.S., and uh, and I, I truthfully haven't ever felt like I was in danger. Yeah, and another thing that was interesting is here in the U.S., the refugee situation tends to be portrayed as a Syrian thing. But of all the immigrants that I saw you interview on that episode, they weren't coming from Syria or Iraq or anywhere where ISIS had a major presence. They were coming from places like Sudan, Eritrea, Nigeria. It's a really good point, Ben. And we we felt very strongly about um, telling that part of the story. There are so many people from African countries that are coming in, again, like you said, who who aren't escaping uh the traditional definition of terrorism, how we think about it, think about it with you know Al Qaeda, ISIS, they're escaping their own governments in many cases, um, and so yeah, we felt very strongly about about telling telling those stories. And I was told that you just came back from the Philippines. What's that story about? We're doing a story on press freedom around the world uh, and the importance of local journalists. So. Um, you know, these are people who uh, are born, raised, and work in the country uh, that they, yeah, that they report on. So, in this case, we were telling the story of uh, of the drug war through the lens of a local journalist, and you know, the threats that they have to deal with under President Duterte, and the importance of their job, um, especially with what's, ha- what's happening in the country right now. So. You know, right now you, you see all again all the headlines about what's happening in a place like the Philippines, where um, people are just being massacred every single night. Uh, around seven thousand people in the last seven months since President Duterte took office, uh, and there are journalists who are reporting on these crimes every single night. And the reason that's incredibly important is because a lot of times, what advocacy agencies like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are finding is that. Uh, police officers are planting evidence to try to prove that it either wasn't them who committed the murder or that uh, the victim brought uh, their death upon themselves, that they were shooting, you know, at the assailant. And and that's the reason that they were killed. Local journalists are incredibly pivotal in proving that because they often get to the crime scene before the cops come to do their investigation. And they the reason that's important, I'll give you an example. We were at a crime scene one night where uh, a local journalist found a small business owner around the corner and started talking to them. Did they see, uh, did they see the killing happen? And the local businessmen showed the journalist a photo of the crime scene, uh, before the police had shown up and there doesn't appear to be a gun. Then the police showed up and we showed up and we were taking footage and a lot of local photographers were taking photos of the crime scene. And sure enough, there was a gun by the victim's hand. Hmm. And so what, you know, these advocacy organizations and local journalists were able to find is that somebody put a gun there, but it wasn't there when the person was killed. And so just to be, you know, witnesses to these crimes um, is helping to create a, a free society. And especially with President Duterte, uh, publicly condoning the assassination of journalists. Their jobs wow. are risky, um, and they've never been more important. Yeah, since you bring that up, I wonder what you guys think about Donald Trump making the press and the media the enemy. I think it's incredibly disturbing. Uh, you know, you look at 
people in his own party, Senator John McCain, who says that this is the first step toward dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, legendary journalists like Carl Bernstein uh, comparing him to other dictators around the world. I mean, I think it's really important that people with influence are standing up and speaking out against it. People like Meryl Streep are using their Golden Globe speech to speak out against him and the way he's treating the press. I think it's concerning. I think it's concerning. Uh, you know, journalism is, people call it the fourth estate for a reason. You know, it's a, it's a pillar in our democracy. I mean, I think that one thing Trump has done is really light a fire under our bellies and under reporters' bellies in general. Um, and I think that it's never been a better time to be a journalist and to make sure that we're completely buttoned up on our facts mm-hmm. um, and to make sure that we're telling stories that matter and telling stories about the world and to empathize with um, people that aren't necessarily within our echo chamber. Is there something of a fear of if you don't get it right or have something wrong of being labeled, quote unquote, fake news now? Definitely. I mean, the stakes have never been higher. And at the same time, it's never been more important to do this job. Um, And if you get it wrong, then you can lose the trust of your audience in a second. Um, So I think that making sure that your research is a top notch, that you know the story back to front, that you verify everything and fact check everything is incredibly crucial. Yeah. Um, And Isabel, one of the stories that you covered this time around is of particular interest to me. You cover the topic of longevity. Um, It's become sort of an obsession with Silicon Valley types like Jeff Bezos. Uh, How close are we from what you found out to being able to add significant amounts of time to our life? I mean, I'd say we are at a turning point. Um, There's a lot of money from some of the smartest people in the world um, going into this field right now. Um, And there's a huge amount of improvements being made, um, both in terms of the types of drugs that we can take in order to prolong our lives to um, this new form of preventative healthcare, which is designed towards um, actually figuring out what's wrong with us before we we even get it. Um, And that could be completely transformative to our healthcare system and could also add many, many years to our own lives. Um, And we met some incredible characters along the way, all of which are... (laughs) Um, Silicon Valley types who are desperate to extend their own lives and also see it as an opportunity to turn mankind around. Did you touch on perhaps some of the socioeconomic problems that may arise from this, where being able to extend your life becomes, uh, you know, the ultimate keeping up with the Joneses? Yeah, it's something that comes up quite a lot when you're doing science stories in general, because the first sort of breakthrough when you when you reach this point is obviously... Uh, the people first in line are the ones who can afford it. So I guess the people who benefit directly from that are the people in Silicon Valley who are creating some of this and who can actually have the money to have some of these treatments. Um, the treatment or the, um, the one of the things that I went through whilst doing the story was a $25,000 worth of medical treatment. So the most extensive <laughs> checkup you will ever, ever receive. Wow. Um, everything from having your genome sequenced to having your blood taken to a microbiome test to a full MRI and brain scan. Um, And obviously, the average person cannot afford that. Um, Having said that, I think that this is, having said that, I think that every time there's a breakthrough in science, um, it can only be a good thing for humans and for mankind. And I think that um, whoever is first in line, um, humanity will ultimately 
benefit from it. I read here that Gianna is doing a piece on fast food in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm guessing that you saw a lot of KFC. <laughs> Am I so right? It's actually it's fast food in the Middle East. We went to Kuwait to do the story. Okay. We were there for about two weeks, um, uh, yeah, meeting with different uh, fast food companies and consumers. Going into this piece, I have to tell you, Ben, I hadn't had fast food in, I don't know, 20 years. And uh, obviously for health reasons, I just had no interest in it. I even got in fights with my brother who eats fast food um, over Christmas holiday. Uh, and then I did this story and I was there eating uh, multiple fast food meals per day for the story. And I have to tell you, I love fast food now. You love fast <laughs> like, food, but only Middle um, Eastern fast food or regular fast food? Regular because I'm, it's all American fast food companies in yeah. Kuwait, uh, so they have their different spins on the dishes. But you can still get the chalupa from Taco Bell and really? the Whopper from from Burger King, and uh, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's gross. But I I have to tell you, I'm 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 into it. I'm gonna get Isabel into it in no time. <laughs> What's most popular over there? That's a really good question. I would say McDonald's. I mean, they okay. they see these companies differently than we do. They they're big, you know, businessmen, multimillionaires who have their business meetings in fast food restaurants. McDonald's <laughs> is sometimes seen as the as like the most luxurious place to host uh, a client. Um, I would say McDonald's, but they have KFC, Taco Bell, yeah. Burger King. They have Pizza Hut, all of them. Yeah, I've noticed that. You know, when I've traveled, the one thing that I see everywhere is KFC. So I think it's the one thing that whether you're in the Middle East or Europe or Asia, they can all agree on for some reason. Absolutely. I guess chicken is safe for pretty much anyone. There's no yeah. re religious restrictions on it's chicken. It's a really good point. And it's it's a it's a central dish in in most cultures. Mm -hmm. So they can they can do KFC their own way. You know, they can do it with rice and different sauces that are popular, that yeah. type of thing. In China, they have KFC chicken feet. KFC <laughs> chicken feet? It's Isabel's favorite one. <laughs> well, yeah, if you go to Japan, uh, KFC is like the big Christmas dinner there, I think. People order it weeks in <laughs> advance, supposedly. Um, well, because Japan has the best food in the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we go, real quick, well, what's the most shocking moment in your careers as journalist for Vice? I think mine was doing, uh, we were doing a piece on international surrogacy in India. And uh, when we went to India, we weren't clear on how expansive or developed the black market there was. And on the last day we were there, we stumbled upon a situation where we were sitting in a restaurant with a surrogacy agent, an under, underground surrogacy agent, and she showed up with a 15-day-old baby. And her intention was to sell the baby to us. And she walked through the whole thing without batting an eyelash, uh, saying, put the down payment down right now, it could be a couple hundred dollars, take the baby for the weekend, and you know, pay me in full on Monday. I wow. couldn't speak and I was shaken for weeks after that. Gosh. How about you, Isabel? Um, I'm going to end on a positive note because <laughs> okay. it's just so unwise to do so. Um, I think one of the most shocking moments for me was when we were reporting on um, a beating blindness story um, and we were in Ethiopia accompanying some uh, foreign um, doctors who were healing cataracts which is a disease that so many people go blind from late in their years or actually even earlier on through to malnutrition in parts of sub-saharan africa 
Um, and I was just amazed at their work there. And within a few minutes, literally it takes about three minutes per eye, they are able to, to unblind these people. They're able to wow. make these people see again. And that's completely transformative for them, for their lives, for these people who majority of them work in agriculture. So they turn to either begging or to just sitting and being completely reliant on their family, um, to being able to see again and to live again. And it was the most overwhelming moment of my life. Incredible. Incredible stuff. Well, season five of Vice airs Friday nights on HBO. Gianna Taboni and Isabel Young, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Ben. Thanks again to Gianna Taboni and Isabel Young for joining me. Follow them on Twitter at at Gianna Taboni. That's G-I-A-N-N-A-T-O-B-O-N-I. And Isabel at at I-Z-Y-E-U-N-G. Vice premieres Friday night, February 24th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. And it airs again at 11 p.m. on HBO. Or you can watch it on demand with a subscription to HBO Go or HBO Now. For more information, visit hbo.com slash vice or vice.com. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at, at @kickassnewspod and be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com/kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. <laughs>